This morning's text is located in Philippians 1, 27 to 30. I invite you to follow along with me as I read Philippians 1, 27 through verse 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear omen to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict which you saw and now hear to be mine. Have you ever wondered what tales will be told in the age to come? When the Lord Jesus has come and the judgment is past and the kingdom has been established and the heavens and the earth have been made new, what will we talk about as we sit by our fireplaces on a cool Minnesota evening, a new Minnesota evening? Or what will we talk about as we walk through the leaves by the St. Croix that have been made gold and yellow, not by the sun, but by the glory of God and of the Lamb? What tales will we tell to one another in those endless days on the new earth? We will tell tales of the grace of God in the history of redemption. We will tell stories about his power and his mercy in the lives of his people, especially those people who planned, fought, strategized, struggled, suffered, and died for the spreading of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We will talk with sweet tears in our eyes. I do believe there will be tears in the age to come. The ones that Jesus promised to wipe away are the tears of pain, not the sweet ones. We will talk to one another with sweet tears in our eyes about the times when we neglected to bear witness to Jesus. About the times when we sat down at our desks and planned with great care our dream vacation and never made any plans to bear witness to Christ. And I say they will be sweet tears because we will remember his patience with us. And that he didn't forsake us in those hours. He could have forsaken us at any split second of our disobedience. And he didn't. And we'll remember it. And the tears will flow over the sweetness of the patience of God that little by little, step by step, brought us to love Jesus Christ so much that we began finally to strive For the faith of the gospel. We will sit in our backyards in those days by the apple trees and the morning glories and the yellow 
marigolds, and we will tell each other stories about the advancement of the gospel. We will recount those nights in which the Lord got victory and made us willing to do some act for the gospel. And the grip of God's mercy that made us run our business and do our job in the marketplace for His glory The grip of God's mercy that made us do our jobs for His glory will be the content of the backyard ballads forever and ever and ever. The world will be stood on its head in those days. You can mark it down. I have dreamed. You may think this is a little far-fetched. I have dreamed that when we all go to Pizza Hut in the age to come, there will be a new Pizza Hut. (laughs) The four televisions will not be showing decadent soaps. Nor will they be showing ludicrous, mindless, all-star wrestling. Rather, the televisions in the new Pizza Hut will be showing clips from the appendices of the book of life where God has recorded all your labors of love and all your works of faith. I believe that with all my heart. The biblical evidence for this is that When you look at the future of God's people in the book of Revelation, you read things like this. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and wonderful are thy deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. So what will we sing about? What will be the ballads in the age to come? They will be about the exploits of Moses and his ilk like you and me, sinners saved by grace, we will sing about the triumphs of grace in your life in the age to come. Those late night struggles when God got the victory over some temptation, we will talk about that in the age to come and He will get the glory. Those times when you mustered your courage and spoke to that person at work about the King of Kings, that will be sung and spoken of in the age to come. The history books are going to be very different in heaven. The world will be on its head. In the history books of heaven, the great people will not so much be the politicians, though I think there are some great ones. The great people in in God's history books will be the missionaries. And the weapons will not be the guns of this age, but the gospel... And the great institution at the center of that history will be the church and not government. And the little anecdotes that give a smell and a flavor of real life will be the stories of your works of faith and your labors of love. Just run-of-the-mill stories of the mighty grace of God in your life, world without end on the lips of his people. You remember the woman who came to Jesus in Luke or Mark 14, and, and she had in her hand a little 
bottle and she broke it and poured this expensive ointment on Jesus' head and gently touched his head and wiped it in. Judas, what a waste this is. This lovely, tender, beautiful, loving, utterly insignificant from a worldly standpoint act. And do you remember what Jesus said? Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, just think a moment. If it is the will of the Lord Jesus that such a little thing be told everywhere in all the world until the end comes, then in heaven, where there is no limit in time, and there are no limits in memory, will not every such deed be told forever and ever to the praise of the glory of God's grace. The most thrilling tales in all the world will be the tales of the triumph of grace as the gospel spread. Bethlehem Baptist Church is a vision of God. And we exist to savor the vision in worship and to strengthen the vision in nurture and to spread the vision in evangelism and world missions. Today we focus on number three, spreading the vision of God. And our text is Philippians chapter 1. Verse 27 and following, and I want you to look at this with me. The point of the text is very obvious. It's how to live worthily of the gospel. Verse 27 sets the stage. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, before we... Look at what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. I want you to look at another text with me, if you're willing. Second Corinthians chapter four. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow, Second Corinthians chapter four. And I'll tell you while you're looking why I want you to look here. I have said that Bethlehem is a vision and that we exist to savor the vision, strengthen the vision, spread the vision. But now I'm talking about living worthily of the gospel. And so we must pose the question, what does the gospel have to do with the vision of God that I've said is Bethlehem? And so in 2 Corinthians 4, I want to show you that the gospel is a vision of God. Verse 4 and verse 6 contain... Very similar phrases. Let's look at the end of verse 4 in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul refers to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the gospel is a vision of the glory of Christ, who is none other than God represented in his Son. Then look at verse 6 for a very similar phrase. At the end of verse 6, Paul refers to the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, notice the differences and similarities between these two phrases in verse 4 and 6. In verse 4, he refers to the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And in verse 6, he refers to the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, there's not much difference there, is there? Let's just stand back and try to define the vision using each of these words or verses. Verse 4. Here we can speak of a vision of God as the glory of Christ. And then he relates Christ's glory to God the Father. And he says Christ is the image of God so that Christ's glory is the glory of God. That's verse 4 and the vision. Now verse 6. In verse 6, the vision focuses first on God the Father. And he says, here we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And then he relates the glory of God the Father to Christ. And says that this glory is seen in no other place than the face of of Jesus Christ in all of its perfection. So, the vision is the vision of the glory of God, and that glory is the glory of Christ radiating out from his person and in his work. So now let's put the two verses together and ask, what is the vision of God in the gospel? And I think you could do it just as easily as I. We could say, The vision of God in the gospel is the portrayal of Jesus Christ in his person and his work infinitely glorious with the glory of God and infinitely valuable as the image of the glory of God. You see, when we believe the gospel, our hearts embrace A vision of glory. This is why the gospel changes people. It's a vision of glory that outclasses all the glories of this world. And if that glory outclasses all of the glories in your heart, you are turned upside down in your values and lead a life that is very different. So here we go back to Philippians 1. Verse 27, to see what the life looks like when the vision is seen. Let's read it here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear about you, that you stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, did you hear or see three characteristics of a life lived worthily of the gospel? Let me point them out to you once again. Number one, verse 27, standing firm in one spirit is the way to live worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I may hear you stand firm in one spirit. Secondly, to lead a life worthy of the gospel is to strive for the faith of the gospel. Verse 27, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then thirdly, in verse 28, 
We walk worthy of the gospel when we are fearless in the presence of opposition, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, let's take those three characteristics of a life that is worthy of the gospel and put them together and see if we can state them in one sentence. And I would say it like this. We are walking worthy of the gospel when we are striving for the faith of the gospel, united and fearless. Or you could turn it around and say, walking worthy of the gospel is a united, fearless striving for the faith of the gospel. Now, a few questions about the words here. The word um, faith. Does it refer to our own faith? Are we striving to strengthen and preserve and grow in our own faith? Is that what's meant here? I doubt it. And the reason I doubt it is because in verse 28, there is a reference to opposition from those outside, isn't there? So that evidently the situation in view is not something that's going on in my closet as I wrestle and strive with God in prayer for the preservation and strengthening of my own faith. That's not what Paul's talking about. Rather, what is in view is some effort outwardly for the sake of the gospel that meets with opposition. And so I think faith here has to do with the spreading of the faith. Other people's faith, striving that faith would spread in a world of unbelief. Next question, the word strive. What kind of a word is that? What does that mean? We don't always like that word. We like the word rest. But there is a striving in the Christian life as well. The word, let me give you the Greek word and see if you can hear an English word in the Greek word. The Greek word is Soon athleo. You take off the word soon, which means along with, side by side, and just say athleo, and you can hear, of course, athlete or athletics. And that is precisely the connotation of the word. It's used two other times in the New Testament. Let me read them to you. Second Timothy 2.5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes, there's the word, according to the rules. And the other use is right at the end of Philippians in chapter 4, verse 3, you remember the situation, Euodia and Syntyche, these two women have been evidently knocking heads over some dispute in the church. And Paul has heard of this and he's writing and he says, now whoever's reading this letter, let's help these women agree and, and let me read you how he says this. I ask you, true yoke fellow, help these women, for they have, and here comes the word, labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there are three uses in the New Testament for this word. Strive, labor, compete. And the connotation is athletic in every case. So what we could say about this word right here. In this verse, in Philippians 1, is it, it connotes effort and discipline and endurance. You're an athlete, you have a goal, a tape measure, or you have a distance you want to throw the javelin or put the shot, or a distance you want to jump in the broad jump, 
And you discipline yourself and you train yourself. And when you're running, you put out every ounce of energy for the sake of the faith of the gospel of Christ, according to this verse. What about now the word worthy? A life worthy of the gospel in verse 27. I think we all know what that means. We use it frequently in this sense. It means if you don't live this way, then you treat the gospel as cheap, right? If you're not engaged in an athletic endeavor on behalf of the faith of the gospel, then the gospel is like all other advertisements on television or in Time magazine or on the radio. It's there. The product is good. I use the product, as a matter of fact. But... Big deal. I mean, I don't make any special efforts to sell the product. It's just another product. The gospel and Coke and good, thick paper towels. Rather, a life worthy of the gospel is a life of an athlete. And we need to become athletes. Eighty-year-old athletes. Eight-year-old athletes. Women athletes and men athletes striving for the faith of the gospel. Now, I don't want you this morning to compare your athletic prowess with anybody else's. Compare your athletic prowess not with what some other athlete can accomplish, but rather with what you could accomplish if you were an athlete. That's all. You wouldn't be able to put the shot as far as William Carey, probably, or throw the javelin as far as Billy Graham throws it, or as carefully lay the lines down on the track as Bill Bright can lay them down. But you are called to be an athlete if you've known the gospel. Do we love the glory of Christ that is exalted when the gospel is believed as much as we love the glory of the twins that would be exalted if they won the pen? Test your affections when you look at that magic number on the front page of the Tribune. If we walk worthy of the gospel, we talk like Gil Zinke. He grew up in Japan. He went to the University of Wisconsin. And then he went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And now he is under appointment as a missionary to Japan with the Baptist General Conference. And here's what he wrote in a recent conference publication. I am motivated not so much by the need which is dire, but by the conviction that God is worthy of the worship of every Japanese. Christ is worthy to receive the full reward of his suffering. The Holy Spirit is sovereign enough to use even me in drawing people to God. And the gospel is worthy of acceptance by all. Now, that last phrase, the gospel is worthy of acceptance by all, is a famous phrase in, in the history of missions. 
uh, Andrew Fuller, a Baptist pastor in the 1780s, wrote a book. William Carey read the book and was deeply moved to, to give his life to go to India. The book was called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. It is worthy of all acceptation and of all our athletic efforts to see that it be accepted. Therefore, we exist as a church not only to savor the vision in worship and not only to strengthen the vision in nurture, but to spread the vision in this city and around the world. Oh, that the city fathers in Minneapolis would come down on us with the same judgment that they came down on the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Do you remember what they said? I'll read it to you. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Twelve of them. Oh, that someone might say of Bethlehem and all the evangelical churches of these cities, they have filled the Twin Cities with their teaching. It rings from every billboard and on the radio and on the television and in the mouth of every business in this city. It seems to be the theme on every tongue. Christ crucified and risen and coming again in glory. Why not? There'll be a thousand people in this room this morning. There were 5,000 at the Minneapolis Auditorium from a 100 churches. How many people does it take to fill Minneapolis and every nook and cranny of downtown with the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It doesn't take any more than this if we are athletes. Your unique athletic striving will not be like anybody else's. And I am so jealous this morning to liberate you from the paralysis of imitation. From the paralysis of your imagination that either looks at somebody and tries hopelessly to copy them or feels guilty that you can't and know you can't. Because God designed you to be you. And if He designed you to be an athlete, which this text most certainly teaches that He did, then His design is for a unique athletic prowess that only you can perform. Absolutely only you can fulfill that dimension on the Olympic team of Christianity. And it won't look like anybody else's evangelism. But the reason it doesn't exist in all of you is real simple. You're a little bit scared to ask God to give it to you. Because if you go on your face before God for ten minutes with total surrender, and say, I can't be like blank, blank, blank. I am just little old, insignificant, inarticulate, frightened me. 
And I want to be an athlete somewhere on the team for you. Show me. I'll do it. And he will. That's the frightening thing about it. So get on your face with God. Because it isn't frightening. You know why? It'll fit you like a glove. He loves you. He never called you to do one thing that isn't for your joy. Not one. Absolutely every act of self-denial or the lopping off of your hand or the gouging out of your eye is for your eternal, everlasting and unsurpassed joy. He designs a glove of evangelism for every single person in this room. To pursue it is not to pursue anything fearful. It's to pursue joy and fulfillment as you've never known it before. Now, many of our imaginations are weak and we need some help. So I want to show you the tip of an iceberg this morning as we close. And I'll just lift off, list off a couple of dozen things that you might do. And I want when I'm done for you to say, nope, that's not me. If, in fact, that's not you. And then go home and say, Lord, what's me? What's me on the athletic team? I want to strive for the faith of the gospel and walk worthy of the gospel. Maybe you are a letter writer. Got any old college friends that have fallen away from God? What would happen if they got a letter from you stained with the tears of your love? Maybe you are a person who is really good at hospitality and fixing nice meals for neighbors, colleagues. Maybe an investigative Bible study. Maybe you're a book sharer like George Verwer. Ever met George Verwer? You'd have a book crease in your face if you had. You can't get near George Verwer without a book sailing out of his hand or out of his pocket. He oozes books. I've never met anybody that believes so much in literature evangelism as George Verwer. Maybe you're a, a reader and a book passer arounder. Or maybe you are a visitor to... Nursing homes, oh, how the elderly need the gospel and need to persevere in faith. Or maybe you will visit prisons, Hennepin County, Stillwater. Or maybe you will visit hospitals. We were just talking as a staff on Monday about the increasing number of AIDS patients in the Twin Cities hospitals. There's a whole floor now at the University Hospital devoted to those who have AIDS And we ask the question as a staff, will Bethlehem be light in a paranoid culture that is selfish and frightened to the core? Will we be like Christians in the 1340s when the bubonic plague killed one third of the population of northern Europe and one half of the population of England? Christians buried the dead. Christians tended for the sick. Why? Because your steadfast love, O God, is better than life. You believe that in your heart? Or will you be perhaps an infiltrator of the PTA? Or maybe some neighborhood action group that you could be on. Or maybe you would invite a mother of young kids to come this Tuesday morning 
to moms. There were about 50 here, I think, two weeks ago. There could be 100 here day after tomorrow if the women who would love it were asked to come. Or maybe that Tuesday night when Pops has its first fall meeting and David Livingston here talks about what it's like to rear four daughters. Can you, can you imagine such a thing? Four daughters. Well, there are fathers. Are there not fathers, young guys? Are there not fathers that you know who might be having trouble at home with kids? Whom you could say, hey, we just got a new pastor at our church. He has four daughters. Can you imagine? He's going to talk about what it's like to rear four daughters this Tuesday night. Want to go with me? Look, the vision of God is revealed in increments. You don't spread the whole vision at once, usually. It takes time and love and patience and perseverance, increment by increment, little bit by little bit, exposure by exposure, until someday it will click by the Holy Spirit in that person's life. Or maybe you're good with a brush and a tool. Nehemiah's day coming up. Watch the star where we go out and do some practical work in this neighborhood. Or maybe you should talk to Steve Roy about how to follow up first timers who come to this church. Or talk to Peter and Cheryl Nelson about ministry to international students. Or talk to Cole Grace who's got this great idea about handing out peace leaflets at the Hindu conference over at the Civic Center in St. Paul in a few weeks. Or talk to Brad Sukup or Randall Van Meter or Oscar Huerta about the evangelism team. The possibilities are limitless. But dream your dream. Find the glove that fits your personality. But don't be content until you've become an athlete because you will not have a life fulfilling and deep with abiding joy until you have found your little place on the Olympic team that is going to win someday. I close by sharing with you something that Peter Nelson, in his year full-time with us, worked a lot to produce. And I want to thank him publicly, and I want to thank Rick Bush as a printer who worked very hard to save us money on this. And I'll tell you what the two purposes are after I show it to you, and then we'll close in prayer. On the front, it says, Hope in God. And you open the first page, and it has... In two colors, a schedule of our church activities. And over here, a letter from me welcoming people to the church or inviting them to the church with a statement of our little philosophy of ministry there. And then you open the page on the inside, and here it has three levels of the floor plan in the church. Have you ever been lost at Bethlehem wondering where to go and how to find things? So there's the floor plan. And then in the middle here, six little pieces of information about who we are, what we believe, our mission, adults and families, children and youth, and the little welcome card. We're going to hand this out to all visitors starting next Sunday during the worship service. And they can fill that out and put it in the offering, or you could pull this one out and open it where it talks about the gospel and some of the doctrinal distinctives of our church and use it as a kind of tract if people are attracted to this kind of, of uh, brochure. And then you close it up, and on the back there's a map for how to get to Bethlehem from the four winds. 
and then all kinds of little parking places where people might find to park. Now, the two purposes for which we have designed this, we have 2,000 of them now. They cost about 35 cents apiece. So keep that in mind as you use them and give them away. But the two purposes are this. Number one, to give them to visitors who come to Bethlehem so that questions that they have about the church might be answered and they can form a good judgment about whether to pursue membership here, here or to inquire further about what we stand for or what we're doing in this neighborhood and in the city. And the second purpose is the one I like to dream about most. And I try to control myself here so that I don't cramp your style by putting seeds of thought in your mind that cut off the seeds that would have popped up if I'd kept my mouth shut. You see, that's one of the problems of giving people an idea. They say, oh, good idea, and then they don't think any other thought after that. And that's the great problem. But I'm going to give you one anyway. Uh, just one, because there are hundreds. This is so attractive and so useful that perhaps if you have a desk where you work, you could just leave one lying on your desk like that. Or if you are really bold, you could get a, make a little container and put three of them in it and sit them up like that on your desk. And then people walk by and they look at it. Hoping that they pick it up. What's this? And you'll say, "What's a packet of information about our church? Where do you go to church? Have you got a church? Have you got a church home?" And they'll either say yes or no or something, and the conversation will go from there. And then you can give it to them. Say, "Well, take it. You can. We can talk about sometime what our church believes and stands for." And and this is so well done that they will look at this, and I think the first impression will be, "Well, wherever you go to church, they sure take seriously." what they believe, and what they do. I hope that you take away from this message this morning a deep desire not to be like anybody else, but to find your place on the Olympic team of Christianity where you can exert your effort, your discipline, and your perseverance in striving for the faith of the gospel. Let's stand and pray together about that. Father, I pray that the overwhelming sense from this text will be that it is a glorious thing to be an athlete for Jesus Christ. And that though we may feel weak, untrained, grant, I pray, that we will take opportunities like the one next Sunday during this service when the class called Ordinary Evangelism for Ordinary Christians will be taught by Mark Yonke in the Fellowship Hall. Lord, I pray that there would be a zeal to be trained by our people and a zeal to be spent until the day comes when Jesus descends and the trumpet sounds and the people are gathered and the new heavens and the new earth Arrive and all sin and all misery and all death is done away and the sun will shine and the marigolds will bloom and the leaves will turn and the air will blow and forever and ever we will sing of the exploits of grace in the lives of your people. And all the people said, Amen.